Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, uh, because we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. So uh, this is our fifth Sunday now in our series on Jesus and the women of faith, looking at Jesus's interactions with women in the Gospels. And today we are looking at a story that appears in some version uh, in all four of the Gospels. It's a story where a woman anoints Jesus with oil. Um, I am convinced, and I'll, I'll make my case here, that there are two events where a woman anointed Jesus with oil that Matthew, Mark, and John are all talking about the same event, and Luke is talking about a different one. And we're going to look at both because both stories emphasize different things. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to open up to John, uh, starting in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. So John 12, verse 1. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this morning, and um, we thank you for the chance to worship together, and we invite you, Lord, to meet with us. Uh, we recognize that you are already here, uh, but Lord, we want to encounter you. We want your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to be transformed more into your likeness. And so we ask that you would do that in us today. Help us to attend to you. And all God's people said, amen. I'm getting a little bit of noise, Caleb. Do you know? Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's, that's good. Thank you. All right. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, 
while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So if you were here during the first week of this series, hopefully you noticed that we have some recurring characters in this passage. The sisters, Mary and Martha, are back, along with their brother Lazarus. You might remember the first passage we looked at in the Gospel of Luke in this, uh, in this series was about Mary and Martha. Jesus came to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Martha got busy right away working on preparing a meal for everybody. Uh, but Mary joined the disciples in sitting at Jesus' feet which means she took on the posture of a disciple. I like to say she took a desk in Jesus' classroom. And when Martha complained that she should be in the kitchen, Jesus said that Mary had actually chosen the one thing that is necessary and that it should not be taken from her. Now, as you can see in this story, the characters are being true to what we know of them. Right? Martha's serving again. God bless her. And Mary, this time, once again, is at Jesus' feet. Only this time, it's not only to learn from Jesus, but is to anoint his feet with perfume and wipe her feet, his feet with her hair. And I want to take a, a moment here to appreciate how special and strange this dinner party is. Okay? Uh, it takes place in Bethany, which is where uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived together, these three siblings. And it was a party that was held in Jesus' honor. Now, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are there. It takes place in Bethany. But it doesn't seem to take place at their house. Uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that this happened at Simon the leper's home. A party was held in honor of Jesus at Simon the leper's home. Now, if Simon was a leper, there was no way he was holding a dinner party, which means he was a leper, and now he no longer was a leper. And that would, it would make sense that he would want to throw a party in Jesus' honor, right? Because probably if he was healed of his leprosy, it was because of Jesus. And the host of this party is not the only one who, there who has been healed by Jesus, we're told that Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. And of course, Lazarus had had an even more severe condition than leprosy, death, for four days. Um, in the chapter immediately before this, John tells the story of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb. Mary and Martha had believed that if Jesus had been there before Lazarus had died, then Lazarus could have made him, or, uh, Jesus could have made Lazarus well. They never even imagined that Jesus could show up four days after he had died and raise him from his tomb. 
uh, but that's what he did. You know, Mary, Mary said, when Jesus said, open the tomb, he said, but by now there will be a bad odor, Lord. And I love how in the King James Version it says, by now he will stinketh, right? Um, but now, miraculously, Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus, and he does not stinketh, right? He is very much alive. In fact, the, the, the smell that's described in this story is not the smell of Lazarus, but the smell of the fragrance of the perfume, right? And Lazarus is not only very much alive, but he is enjoying one of life's greatest pleasures, right? A, a fancy dinner with friends, we know this is a fancy dinner because it says that Lazarus was reclining. You sat at a normal dinner, but you reclined at a fancy dinner. So this is a party with the best kind of food, hosted by a man who was figuratively raised from the dead, right? He was given his life back because he had leprosy, and now he's been healed. And it's attended by a man who is literally raised from the dead, and it's held in the honor of the man who restored these people, right? The great physician. So this is like a little foretaste of heaven, right? Like the grand banquet in the kingdom of God. And at this party in honor of Jesus, Mary decides to honor Jesus in an extravagant way. So she pours a pint of expensive perfume on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, a pint is about 12 ounces of perfume, and ordinarily, a flask would hold about an ounce. Right? So this is 12 flasks worth of perfume. This is a lot of perfume. And Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus' head was anointed. John says that Jesus' feet were, were anointed, I don't see a contradiction because I think there was plenty of oil to go around if there was 12 flasks, right? So how expensive was this perfume? Well, Judas says it was worth a year's wages. In the actual Greek, it says that it was 300 denarii. A denarius was one day's pay for a common laborer. So 300 denarii, subtract the Sabbaths out of the year, right? That's about a year's wages, as the translators say. So this is some very expensive perfume. And it's very unlikely that Mary had gone off and bought this for this moment. Jesus says it's been saved, right? So this is probably some perfume that was part of a family heirloom that had been passed down, maybe for several generations. Some families keep their money in real estate. They had it in perfume. But in this moment, Mary takes that wealth, $30,000 worth, and wastes it on Jesus. And I'm, for those listening online, I'm putting that in quotes, wastes it. She wastes, she wastes it on Jesus. And Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would eventually betray Jesus, says, why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor, the money given to the poor? Now, of course, John wants us to know that Judas' motivation is not pure. He says he was a thief. Judas was the one who took care of the money bag. When the disciples traveled, somebody had to take care of the money, and that was Judas. 
And apparently Judas did not handle the money bag with integrity. He used to help himself to it. So Judas was upset that $30,000 had ended up on Jesus' feet when it could have been in the money bag. Now, what exactly he would have wanted that money for, I'm not sure. Was he just greedy? Maybe. Maybe he thought that money could have been used to help the Jesus movement against Rome, that it could have been used to buy weapons and influence in the Messianic campaign. I'm more inclined to think that's what's going on here. But whatever the case, Judas expressed his disapproval. And even though his motivation was impure, it does seem like he's got a point, right? Couldn't this perfume have been sold and given to the poor? Now, Judas knew that Jesus cared about the poor. In the Gospel of Matthew, this story is told right after Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25. And in that parable, Jesus says that whatever you do to those in the worst of circumstances, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. To, ne to neglect the poor is like neglecting Jesus. So if Mary is willing to pour out $30,000 worth of perfume on Jesus, isn't she neglecting the poor? And if she's neglecting the poor, isn't she, in a sense, neglecting Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't think so. Right? Jesus defends her. Leave her alone, he says. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus' defense is basically, it is fitting that Mary do this because I'm about to die. He says, you will not always have me. And of course, by that he meant, you will not always have me physically present with you in the flesh. Jesus is with us now. He told his disciples when he gave them the Great Commission that he would be with them always until the end of the age. So, of course, there is a sense in which he is with us through the Holy Spirit. But he was only in the body physically present for a brief period of time, right? And so he said, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, we've got to be careful not to misunderstand Jesus here, okay? When he says you will always have the poor among you, he's not saying that it is futile to help the poor. He's not saying that we should just leave them in their condition and not attempt to do anything about their situation. Certainly not. Some people have twisted Jesus' words here to try to make those kinds of arguments. Jesus' point is that Mary's extravagant act is fitting. It is appropriate because his time on earth in the physical body is about to come to an end. He is about to be crucified. Now, it's very possible that Mary was not aware that Jesus was about to be crucified. I don't think she actually knew. You know, Jesus warned his disciples multiple times that he was going to be crucified, and they still seemed surprised when it happened. Right? So Mary may not have been aware. But what she certainly did know was that Jesus is worthy of the highest honor. 
She had sat at his feet and heard his remarkable teaching. She had been welcomed to do that, despite the fact that it was against the custom of the time for women to sit at a rabbi's feet. She had witnessed him raise her own brother from the dead after four days. So Mary knows Jesus is no ordinary man. He is no ordinary rabbi. She recognizes that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The Jews were long expecting that a king would come, a special king who would make things right with the world. And they called him the Messiah. And what Messiah literally means, this is important, is anointed one. Because in those days when someone was enthroned as king, especially king over Israel, they were anointed with oil. And what that oil represented was the presence of God with them, giving them authority, granting them authority. So when Mary pours this oil on Jesus, part of what that expresses is that she recognizes him as the one with God's authority, the one on whom God's presence rests, the Messiah, the long-awaited king. But whether she realizes it or not, Mary has also expressed something else by anointing Jesus. You see, kings were not the only ones who were anointed with oil. Dead bodies were also anointed for burial. And this is what Jesus emphasizes, right? Whether Mary realizes it or not, she has prepared him for burial. Her act is prophetic. It it foreshadows the fact that he will soon be buried, that he will soon die. So, this anointing expresses, one, that Jesus is Lord, and two, that he is about to make the ultimate sacrifice. And the extravagance of the anointing is a sign of how worthy Jesus is to be called Lord and of the incredible value, the incalculable value of the sacrifice that he is about to make. Mary understands that Jesus is more valuable than anything. Anything. You know, John tells us that she wipes his feet with her hair, and that's supposed to be a little shocking, because in those days, when women were in public, they were expected to keep their hair covered. That was the respectable thing to do. But here, Mary humbles herself by loosening her hair and then putting her hair on the part of Jesus' body that would be considered the most dishonorable, the feet. In those days, feet were really thought of as dishonorable, even more so than now, because, you know, you'd walk around in sandals or in bare feet on those dusty streets before public sanitation. Feet were dirty. But Mary recognizes that even Jesus' dirty feet deserve honor. Now, if we cannot see the value of Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice, this story will offend us. There's no way around it. What a waste. $30,000 worth of perfume. Think of all the ways that could have been used. All the practical things we could have done with that, right? But if we have some sense of the true value of Jesus, then we're not going to think that way. 
will agree with what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark's Gospels. She has done a beautiful thing. Mary has done something which is a sign for all future generations. Jesus actually says in Matthew and Mark that wherever the gospel is preached, this story about what she's done is going to be told. And of course, that has happened, right? Because we're still talking about it right now. What Mary does here is a testimony for us, a sign to us. Jesus is more valuable than all the perfume in the world, more valuable than any family heirloom. Jesus is more valuable than all the finer things that money can buy, than anything that money can buy. He is the creator, sustainer, and savior of the world. He is the only one who can rescue us from the powers of sin and death. He is the great physician in the world of sickness. He is the great judge in this world of injustice. He is the loving shepherd in this world of lost sheep. Have we realized this? Do we see this? Do we see what Mary saw? Helping the poor with their material needs is important. That is a key part of being faithful to Jesus. Again, Matthew 25, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. But our faith cannot and should not be reduced down to just meeting people's material needs. If that was all we were called to do, then Judas is right, right? What Mary did was a waste. But what Mary did was beautiful. Because money and food are not supposed to be the only things that we as the church offer the world. If all the church has to offer is money and food, we're never going to be able to address the deep concerns of the human heart. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone. Food and money are necessary for human flourishing, but they can't ease a guilty conscience. They can't satisfy our desire for meaning. They can't free us from our harmful habits and addictions. They can't transform us into people of love. They can't liberate us from the fear of death. You know, we live in a time and place where the vast majority of people do have access to water, food, and shelter. There are exceptions, but the vast majority, thank God, do have those things. But rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, drug overdoses, all skyrocketing. The world is just, does not just need bread. It needs the bread of life. Man does not live on bread alone. The world needs Jesus. And so it is not a waste when some of our time and resources go to the non-practical things. The non-practical being the worship and exaltation of Jesus. Man does not live on bread alone. And I think when we do value Jesus appropriately, we actually end up doing more good for people's material needs. 
I was doing some research this week, and I read an article from um, an organization called the Philanthropy Roundtable, and they argued that research indicates that Christians who are involved in faith communities are more likely to give to charity. And you might be thinking, oh, well, they just mean how much you know, tax-deductible donations go to their churches, right? No. Even to secular charities, Christians involved in faith communities are more likely to do that kind of philanthropy um, than those who are, who are not. Jesus said, the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people think that the world would be better off if we just focused on the second command and forgot about the first one, right? Love your neighbor. Don't worry about the God stuff. But Jesus preached these two commands as intertwined, as complementary. Of course, if we don't love our neighbors well, we shouldn't say that we love God. Because we don't. John the Apostle wrote, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Right? But we should also recognize that our capacity to love our neighbors is tied, intertwined with our love for God. These two commands belonged together. Our capacity to love our neighbors is diminished when we do not love God. So if we want to love our neighbors well, if we want to care for the poor, some of our time and resources should be, quote, wasted on Jesus, on knowing Jesus, on exalting Jesus. Because man does not live on bread alone. No one does, neither the rich or the poor, and nothing is more valuable than him. All right, so I said that there are two events here of women anointing Jesus with oil. So let's look at the other one. This is from the Gospel of Luke, starting in uh, chapter 7, verse 36. I know we're going a little bit long. We'll do this one faster than the first one, I promise. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Oh, sorry. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Oops. Sorry. Um, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. All right, so sorry about the slides. I think I accidentally sent you the wrong one, Caleb. So, oh well. Um, So as you can see, this story is different from the one that we just read in a couple ways. It takes place not at Simon the leper's house, but Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon the leper threw a party in honor of Jesus, but Simon the Pharisee isn't interested in honoring Jesus, right? He's invited Jesus to a party, but he's not honoring him. In fact, he doesn't even give him any water to wash his feet when he comes into his home. That was just standard hospitality then, but he doesn't even do that. I suspect that as a Pharisee, this Simon probably invited Jesus into his home to kind of size him up, to judge him. Obviously, uh, Jesus' ministry had been causing a lot of commotion, and so he probably wanted to get a sense of what is this guy like, and, and maybe what can I use against him. So these are different Simons, and they've got different attitudes towards Jesus. Now you might say, they're both named Simon? Two guys named Simon hosted parties where Jesus was anointed with oil? Isn't that a little suspicious? There must have been some mistake here, right? Well, I don't think so, because Simon was a very common name in those days, right? Simon Peter is one of the disciples. And have you noticed there's like a million Marys? in the Gospels, right? Is Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany from the last story, Mary of Clopas, Mary the mother of Joseph? There's a lot of Marys. And just as an aside, you know, this is one of those reasons to trust that the Gospels are historically valid, right? Because if you were making up a story, would you name everybody the same thing? Right? Who does that? When you read fiction, You don't give your characters all the same name. That's confusing, right? But these were common names at the time, right? So just a reminder, okay? This is not just a fabrication. This is, these people are called these names because that's, those were their names, right? Even though it's not convenient for the narrative. So this Simon, Simon the Pharisee, invites Jesus to a fancy dinner, not to honor him, probably to size him up, This happens much earlier in Jesus' ministry than the story in Matthew, Mark, and John. Uh, It happens only a third of the way into Luke's gospel, but in Matthew, Mark, and John, they all have it in the last week before Jesus' death. But the biggest difference between these stories is that the scandal is different. The scandal in the last story is the extraordinary amount of perfume and the fact that it was worth $30,000. But in this story, there's no mention of the cost of the perfume. This woman doesn't even appear to have a lot of perfume to offer. Because before she even puts any perfume on Jesus' feet, what does she do? She puts her tears on his feet. Right? There's no mention of tears when Mary anoints Jesus. But this woman first weeps on Jesus' feet. So the scandal of the story is not the amount of perfume or the cost of the perfume, but the anointer, the woman. 
Luke tells us plainly that she's lived a sinful life. We don't know exactly how she had lived a sinful life. Many interpreters think it's strongly implied that she would have been a, a prostitute. She may have been. Perfume would have been associated with that. But the text doesn't tell us what made her life sinful. And I think that's good because it then allows us to put ourselves in her shoes with our worst sins in mind, whatever they might be. Jesus confirms that this woman is a sinner, right? He confirms that she has much to be forgiven for. But when this woman humbles herself, casts herself at Jesus' feet, he does not scold her. He doesn't say, woman, don't you realize that I am too holy to be in your sinfulness? Get your dirty hair off my feet. Don't you remember the story of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant? You get too close to the holy. If you're sinful, you'll die. She doesn't say it. He doesn't say anything like that to her, right? He says, your sins are forgiven. When he sees her tears and her adoration, your sins are forgiven. Now, when Simon the Pharisee sees this display, he says, if this man was a prophet, he would know what this woman is like, and he would not be touching her. Notice, Simon doesn't even consider the possibility that Jesus actually knows what she's like and would be okay with this. Right? That's just not even on the table as an option for him. But Jesus does know what this woman is like, and he receives this anointing from her gladly. He receives it as a beautiful thing because he knows it's an expression of her love for him. And her love for him is a consequence of her humility. She loves him because she knows she has a moral debt that she cannot pay, and she knows that Jesus is offering her God's forgiveness. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. That's the point of what Jesus says to the Pharisees, Simon the Pharisee. And she can appreciate that she's been forgiven of much because she's humble enough to recognize that. Now, Simon the Pharisee, he doesn't have that kind of love for Jesus because he doesn't have that kind of humility. He doesn't see his own sin. He sees her sin, but he doesn't see his own sin. Now, I want to close with this thought, okay? What Jesus says to Simon suggests that there are two ways that our love for Jesus can grow cold or cease to be enkindled in the first place. The first way is to think that we don't really need God's forgiveness. It's to think that we don't carry any kind of moral debt. Do we recognize the part that we have played in the brokenness of the world? If we have lived long enough, we have contributed. 
guaranteed. Do we recognize that we need forgiveness, both for what we have done and what we have left undone, as the old confession says? We have all fallen short of true righteousness by what we have done and left undone, by what we have committed and what we have omitted. Now, we can fail to see that, especially if we're like Simon the Pharisee, especially if we're really focused on the ways other people are sinning and judging them for their sin. We can go our whole lives never seeing our own sin if we're too fixated on everybody else's. Until we recognize our own moral debt before God, our love will be lackluster. But of course, there's a second way that our love can grow cold. And that's when we fail to recognize that Christ really does offer us forgiveness. That he really does. He really has chosen to take our moral debt upon himself. He really has chosen to call us friends rather than condemn us. As 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, you might feel like the woman in this story, like you're carrying an overwhelming moral debt from a sinful life. If you do, I want you to see the love that Jesus has for this woman. See the way he defends her. If you can come to Jesus in humility, confessing that sin, trusting in him, he will not turn you away. He will not scorn you. He will cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And he will defend you even as others try to condemn you. Amen? Lord, I thank you for the examples of these women. Thank you for the example of the woman we just read about who is able to recognize the moral debt she carried and cast herself on your feet. Thank you for the example she shows us of what it looks like to love you, to receive your forgiveness, and to be filled with joy and thankfulness. We thank you for the example of Mary of Bethany as well, who shows us that we do not live on bread alone and nothing is more valuable than you. Lord, help us to know and experience what these women knew and experienced. In Jesus' name, amen.